So we look at uh, Romans 7 and the closing uh, four verses, 21 to 25. Romans chapter 7 and verse 21. So, I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now, every uh, Christian has a fight on his hands. And the invitation of the gospel that's extended then to you is not an invitation to some um, easy religious escapism. It's not that at all. It's an invitation to a conflict. The fight is, first of all, with the world. A world around us, a world we live in, people that we know, our own families, disoriented by sin, a world that operates in terms of another gospel, the spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience. The world tempts us. It shows us all its glittering prizes, and it would destroy us if it could. We have to be on guard against the world. We're fighting with the world. Secondly, we are at war with the devil, with principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. And we've seen in the last year explosions of evil, men cutting off the heads of other men on camera or burning them alive. Horrendous cruelty has been shown to us in these past months. And no doubt we're going to see as bad, if not worse, in the months to come. Young girls absconded and forced into what are called marriages. Now that is not ordinary wickedness, is it? And again, it's not far from any of us. And we are called to resist the darkness of unfettered evil that comes from the pit. But of course, uh, the devil is a crafty fellow. And sometimes um, he will come like an angel of light. He will come with a shining face and deep sincerity and earnestness. And we will wobble as we are used to resisting those horror scenes, but not used to resisting this approach. And then there's a third fight in which we are engaged. And it's what Paul is speaking of in these uh, verses that have been read in your hearing. A war within us, the enemy within. And uh, in the passage that I read to you, there are more titles that are given to that inner evil than anywhere else in all of Scripture. We're not ignorant of this uh, presence and this plague that troubles us because uh, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has uh, gone to such trouble to write down these things in order to inform us, to make us ready for the battle. Um, firstly, he calls it evil that is right there with me. Verse 21. It's right there with me. Is that plain enough? And then he, 
he tells you through. Another thing he says, it's another law at work in my body. Verse 21, you see that. That God has written his law in our hearts. And that law says, love me with all your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. But there's another law. Another law in our members. And it says, do it your way. That's what it says. Give in to your fantasies and your desires. And then, uh, thirdly, he describes it in verse 22 as the law of sin at work within my members. That's our inner opponent. A law of sin at work. And uh, it's at work now, at this moment. You think, ah, your problem is your minister, maybe, and his preaching. But that is a much lesser problem. It may be a problem for you and for me. But there's a much lesser problem. It is a much lesser problem than uh, the problem that you carry about in you. Your attitude, the pressures, the feelings, the desires that work away in you. The law of sin that just pushes you in certain directions to do the cruelest and daftest and the unhappiest of things. And fourthly, he calls it this body of death. Verse 24. Now, I'm told in Asian societies in the old days, when a murderer was caught, he was punished in a fiendish way. The body of the man he had killed was chained to his back, and he could never be separated from it while he lived. It rotted and stank and decayed away, a body of death on his back. And we have sin, a body of sin that we have to live with until we will find release at Jesus' feet when it will roll away into the bottomless pit forever and ever. That's striking enough, but there's more. Fifthly, he says, in the sinful nature, he is a slave to sin. That's what he says. Slave, a slave to sin, instead of sin obeying him. And he tells sin, no, I'm not. Slave, he becomes to sin itself. And when sin says to him, be unforgiving, hold grudges, ignore people, be nasty, be mean, be hard, be proud, give in to your lusts. There are times he gives in. He's a slave to sin instead of sin being under his control. That's your enemy. Now my preaching about this to you is not going to make it any worse. The first means of victory in any conflict is to know who your enemy is. And this is the holy war in which every Christian is engaged. Now we have seen as we have surveyed this letter to the Romans, that there there is not one single individual or personality in any generation in the history of man from Adam until today who is not guilty before God. That every one of us has an inherited guilt and sin. And we cannot hold our heads high. You know, um, guilt is the 
consequence of sin. You see it in your dog. You, the dog has got into the kitchen and he's at the cake. And you say to him, Fido, what have you done? Fido? And you know how Fido then <laughs> is guilty and shows his guilt. Fido holds his head down, looks at you so sorrowfully, knowing he's done wrong. That's guilt. An awareness that what we have done is wrong. Sin is the act itself. Now, uh, there's just one uh, perfect and lovely man who never had to bow his head in guilt. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He's exceptional. He's blessedly different. The divine verdict which finds every man guilty, every man, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, old people, kings and rulers, servants, slaves, it comes to him and it says, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens. That's our Jesus. And we Christians have been delivered from the condemnation of sin um, by his not being delivered from it, though he did no sin himself, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we've been delivered from the condemnation of sin, but we've not been delivered from the activities of sin and the presence of sin. And we will not be until we meet our Savior, until we see him, even on our deathbed. There will be regrets and doubts but not when we meet him. The first thing I want to talk to you about from this passage is the importance of the law of God. And you see that in the passage that I read to you, there are four or five references to the law, God's law, sin's law, and so on. And it's one of uh, Paul's um, convictions that um, you can't begin to understand the human condition apart from reference to the law of God. It seems a strange uh, situation that the Christian church is in today, that there are so, there are so few references to, to the law of God, and they want to play down the law. They want to talk about the great evangelical sections of the Bible. They want to talk about grace and mercy. But they still want to talk about Jesus Christ saving us from sin. And it's a gospel for sinners. And that he came into the world to save his sinners. And I want to say that um, from any reading of the Bible, you can't have it both ways. You can't talk about sin and not talk about the law. Because sin, by any definition is a breach of the law of God. And that was Paul's starting point in this letter then, wasn't it? He says, here are the Jews, first of all. Well, they are descendants of Moses. They were there at Sinai. They received the Ten Commandments. And 
they are found guilty. But the Gentiles, God has not spared them from the law of God because he has written the things of the law in every heart. And their conscience bears witness so that when they lie and lust and steal and deceive and covet, conscience and the law within them nudges them and says, that's not right, you know. That's wrong, you know. So that all have broken God's law, the Jews and Gentiles alike. We are all culpable. And we need a deliverance that comes down to us, that is offered to us and received by us from heaven. It's not something that we work up to by our actions. Now, Paul struggled to grasp how searching and humbling and thorough was the law of God. He was awakened to the fact by the inward demands of the law of God, by the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And you know, if you've read uh, the commandments, and some of them are uh, exegeted, they are amplified, they are explained um, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 itself, the two places in the Bible where the Ten Commandments are found. Some of the commandments, I'm trying to say this, some of the commandments are very plain. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, and so on. But some of the commandments, like the Fourth Commandment, and like this Tenth Commandment, are amplified. And so the importance of them really must be laid upon us by the lawgiver. So, um, the Tenth Commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. It's a beautiful house. Not like your little house. Don't covet it. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet the people who work for your neighbor. Not like the surly servants you have. You shall not covet your neighbor's cows or sheep, he says. Or anything that is your neighbor's. Is your heart frustrated at times when you look at your neighbor, the person in the office with you, the boy um, on the school bus with you, the girl that you sit next to and she's got beautiful pens and colored pencils and uh, uh, the latest uh, uh, iPad and... uh, nice clothes and you covet you're dissatisfied with what you've got you're restless you're itchy you're angry and envious and that is sin and that was the commandment that went in and in and in and in to the mind of the apostle Paul it went into his will it went into his plans it went into his future and the Lord said to him It's no good, you know. It's no good. It's not acceptable that you have feelings like that. And against a standard like that, Paul had no defense. He was weighed in the balances and found wanting. Until that day when the arrow of the tenth commandment was shot into his heart, Paul felt he was blameless. He was boasting that he was keeping all the commandments And he was boasting because that was the glory of Israel, that God had given them the law. And the best men, the top men, the men you admired, the stars were the Pharisees. 
And they kept the law of God. Like uh, guides and brownies and scouts and soldiers wear badges and medals for their achievement, Paul had ten bars that he wore proudly and when he'd walk upon the equivalent to our promenade on a Sunday evening and swaggered along it and people would bow before him because he was the chief of the Pharisees. They all thought and he thought he was a very righteous man and God's spirit started to work on him and it began to show him that the very desire to sin is a breaking of the commandment of God. And the proud Pharisee died. He didn't swagger any longer. He was humble. His head was down like a dog who'd been caught breaking the household rules. He was doing all he did for his own glory. He was doing it all to be admired that people would nudge one another and say, look, there's the chief of the Pharisees walking along there. Ian D. Campbell speaks about fathers who go along with their sons to a little league match. Your son is playing and you cheer him on and uh, well, it's supposed to be bonding. Isn't it? I never understood it was how it could be bonding. You're sitting there with a lot of, standing there, a lot of other dads and he's out there running around and kicking the ball. But anyway, you cheer him on and then some fullback comes and he kicks your son trips him up and you shout to the ref foul ref he kicked that boy you want the weight of the law to come down on the player who kicked your son there are no antinomians in football matches but when your boy trips up and fouls someone else it's very quiet in the part of the ground that you are standing in. You, you don't shout, ref, ref, he, he fouled. You, you turn away and you give a wry smile. You are alive without the rule book because you want the rules only insofar as they benefit you and yours. And Paul is telling us that's how he lived. He was keeping the commandments and he was boasting about how he kept them. But all the time, he was alive without the law, without a, being aware of how searching the law of God is. And when it came powerfully to him and stripped him of all his specious defenses, he was overwhelmed with guilt. He needed a savior. The only one who accomplished all that the law of God demanded the only one who could pay the penalty for other people who had broken the law of God by taking their condemnation. Paul saw it. That was what the gospel did to him. That's what the Damascus Road did for him. That's what kicking against the goads of the law of God had done for him. His only hope in this world and in the world to come is the hope I am extending to you tonight. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. How did he do it? Well, he, he came down to seek us. What a journey 
from the heights of heaven. Oh, a long journey he came down to look for us. He was born under the law, and he lived under the law, and he suffered under the law, and he died under the law's condemnation, and he rose as our justification on the third day. He came, he came down from earth to heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And he did it to save us. We can't go up. He came down. Perish the thought that any of us can go up to the law of God and see those ten laws and think, ah, these are rungs on a heavenly ladder and I will climb the ladder of the law and I will get to heaven by my law keeping. Perish the thought. Many, many people think that. They believe in justification by death. In other words, at the end of a decent life, generally keeping the Judeo-Christian ethic, as it's called, God will justify Christians, sinners, at the point of their death. But in the New Testament, then, the message of the gospel is the opposite. If you are not declared righteous, justified, in life, if you're not forgiven and pardoned, and accepted by God in life, you will never be accepted in death. Because that law-breaking is not reversed by your dying. Death doesn't have a justifying, sanctifying religious effect as the tree falls. So it lies. You need to be delivered from the root and the fruit of your sin. You can't find a remedy inside yourself. There's no hero inside yourself that you can find that's going to deliver you. You need another hero. Oh, completely outside of ourselves. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord. Oh, wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. It's him. He comes to seek us and to save us. Noah, the culture in which we live, uh, encourages us to think that if we have a problem, it's outside ourselves. The problem is with the government. The problem is with the National Health Service. The problem is with our neighbors. The problem is... uh, it's with uh, our teachers or whatever. We blame somebody else. It's out there. All the difficulties are out there. and uh, you, The answer is inside yourself. The answer is uh, your own resources. The, the Bible has a completely different view. The problem is in yourself. The problem is with yourself. And the solution is outside of yourself completely. And the glory of the gospel is that God is the great physician and he comes and he comes and he supplies the balm of Gilead, the medicine, the healing, the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all our guilt and and sin. There's a righteousness that is apart from the law, apart from our law keeping and 
apart from our good works, and it's found in the righteous Jesus Christ. And that's the glorious conclusion that he comes to in the verses that are before us. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He died the death that uh, we deserve to die. Under God's condemnation, he bore the penalty. He paid the debt. He bore the guilt. He's the perfect saviour of sinners because he is God's saviour. Before he is the saviour of any one of us, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he has obtained a pardon in God's sight, full and free and That's his argument and that's the grounds for his rejoicing at the end of this chapter. There's hope in his dying. There's glory in his rising again. And in the wonder of his atonement, what he has done. There he is. And here am I, a prisoner of the law of sin at work in my members, living in this body of death, in this sinful nature, as a slave to the law of sin. And on top of that, the God who hates sin is looking at me, is scrutinizing me. Can any hide himself in a secret place that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Don't I fill the heavens and the earth, says the Lord? He does. But there's deliverance. He's come. He's come, my friends. He's come on a rescue mission. He delivers sinners who believe in him. He joins them to himself. I am pardoned. I stand before him. And he says, not guilty. I have peace with God. Wherever else I lack peace. In a society that hates God and in a family that's disrupted by uh, sin and is uh, uh, dismayed at my new discovery of religion. As they say, I don't have peace with them, but oh, my friends, I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. I have access by grace into the faith wherein I stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I am forgiven. I've given, I'm given the victory over the sin that prevails now in my life. It won't prevail forever and ever. Now, in my inner being, I really want to do good. I really do. My cousin who wrote to me this uh, past week and may one day listen to this, this sermon... As he listens online to my sermons, he tells me now, and he says, they're helping me to be a better Christian. I was very touched when I read those words that my cousin wrote to me. They're helping me. God is helping us day by day to be better Christians. I can't live any longer in unbelief as once I did. I belong to another. No, I'm, I'm married to another. I'm uh, in love with him. And he's in love with me. And I'm under his protection. And day by day, 
I, I receive provision for all my deepest needs. I'm not governed by my sinful passions. Uh, they're there, but they can't take my Savior from me. And they can't destroy the grace that makes me trust in him day by day. I find there's a law in me that says, please yourself, live for yourself, do it your way. If you both like it, do it. I find that it is waging war on the law of Jesus Christ. But he's there. He's there to help me. He's there in my mind. I find no deliverance at all in me. Paul ends uh, Roman 7 speaking of himself. I myself in my mind. Five words and three of them are I myself me. And he says I'm a slave to God's law. The real me. I myself me. I'm a slave to God's law. I keep going back to it. I'm troubled, I'm pulled down. Ah, that's what remaining sin does. But God keeps me. God keeps me day by day. Now there are people, and we've talked about them before, let me have my last dig at them. They say we need to get out of Romans 7 and to get into Romans 8. Now that would make no sense at all. You know that um, Sunday morning in Rome, when the letter arrived, a courier brought it um, from uh, the Apostle Paul and uh, it arrived and the congregation got together and an elder, a minister got up and he said, men and women, I've got something very wonderful here. Um, Paul has, has written to us. And I'm going to read to you now the letter that, that he has written. And so he picked up this, this scroll and he began to read it in an absolutely packed and hushed assembly of Christians and that letter that he read to them didn't have any verse numbers and that letter that he wrote to them it didn't have any chapter divisions at all any more than the letters that you send to people or the emails you write to them have divisions and so coming out of chapter 7 and going into chapter 8 would make no sense at all to the people to whom this letter was originally written. But apart from that, is it really advantageous for us to be leaving this chapter and for us then to get into chapter 8 and say, great, he's finally finished with chapter 7. There are beautiful things, many beautiful things in chapter 8. But chapter 8 is the chapter that tells you you need to put to death constantly remaining sin. In chapter 8, we're told that we must suffer with him. In chapter 8, we're told of the sufferings of this present time. In chapter 8, we're told that we are groaning. Chapter 8 tells us that we don't know what to pray for, as we ought. Chapter 8 is the chapter that tells us that we're going to have trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. That we're going to be killed all day long. That we are to be reckoned as sheep for the slaughter. I want to bury this cliché 
that we need to get out of chapter 7 and to get into chapter 8 as fast as possible because I want you to be alive and happy in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 of Romans. The second question I want to ask you then, moving on hurriedly now, is why does Paul delight in God's law? Hasn't the law condemned you? Aren't you guilty because of the law? The law can't save us. The law can't sanctify us. And yet Paul says the law is holy and spiritual and just and good, and we delight in it. So what is there for us to delight in in the law of God? Well, the first thing that Paul is delighting in is that the law is like the one who gave it. It is spiritual like God. It is holy like God. It is good like God. It is righteous like God. And I delight in the law because I delight in God. The purpose of the law of God was to remind people just what God is like, who you are dealing with day by day, that he is the holy God. You know, people describe the commandments and they use that phrase that I've just used. The Judeo-Christian ethic, they call it. As if it was something that uh, some religious scholars in the Old Testament and in the New Testament invented and put together as if it was something that rose from the earth. It is the very character of God. It is these great commandments that insist that we have no other God, but that we worship God aright, that we revere his name, and that we honor him. And in all our relationships in this world, there is respect. We treat the older women as mothers. We treat the younger women as uh, sisters. And we honor them by telling the truth to them. And we honor their lives And we honor the lives of the unborn child. And we honor property. And above all things, we are content. We are content with where we are. Where we are in 2015, at the beginning of August, where God has put us and what he's done with us. We are are a contented people because God, God isn't frustrated and wringing his hands in horror. There are no neuroses in the God of heaven. And we are to know the peace of God that passes all understanding, the contentment that God gives to us. And that's what we are. We love the law because we love the lawgiver. And secondly, the law is holy and righteous and good because... It perfectly is embodied in the one who came into the world, our blessed Savior. In one of his letters, John Newton then is written to, and he's asked questions like people write to me and ask me questions. And uh, Somebody writes to him once, and uh, they, they give him 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. The law is good if a man use it lawfully. And it's that adverb, lawfully, that has puzzled his correspondent. He writes to him and he says, what what does that mean? 
How can I use the law lawfully? And John Newton replies very helpfully. It's in his letters, it's in the little banner paperback of letters, and of course it's in the volumes of his life that have just been reprinted. And he says, we use it, we use the law perfectly when, when we see Jesus Christ in the law, when we see the perfection and beauty and excellence, how straight, what a man of integrity and truth and dignity and honesty and humility was Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior. He glorified the law of God in his character day by day. He's the very embodiment of the law of God and uh, uh, he uses the, uh, the image of the plumb line which uh, E&D uses so, so well too. You know what a plumb line is? A plumb line is a string and there's a, a weight, a lead at the bottom and you're building a wall. And uh, you don't uh, measure the, the straightness of the, of the wall by the wall itself. The wall may, may be askew and you may be going off at an angle but you, you, you measure the wall by the plumb line. You hold it and it's there, and it's perfectly v- vertical. It's there. Jesus Christ is the plumb line. And Jesus Christ measures then. Of all men, he is God's great definition. This is the real man. This is the man we're to admire. This is the man we're to copy. This is the man we're to love. Look at him with his friends, how patient he is with them and with their foibles and questions. And look how he is before his enemies, before the soldiers that crucified him. Father, forgive them. Look at him before the chief priests and the Pharisees and their difficult questions and their superiority. How, how wonderful this man, Jesus Christ. You know what sort of life we should be living a God-honoring life in, in all relationships. And he did it. And we don't do it. And so we look to him and his righteousness as our only hope and our salvation. There never has been since the fall of Adam a man who in every way was the very image and likeness of God who walked this earth, who was held down by gravity, just as we are held down by it, who had to breathe oxygen in and breathe out carbon dioxide, who needed food, who needed to wash himself. He did it all as a man for us and our redemption. You peel away everything about him and there at the core of his being, he loves God. The emotional life of our Lord He delights in the law of God. He rejoices in his spirit. Everything utterly defensible. He can stand in the naked flame of the holiness of God and not be consumed. He can dare to look at God in in the face. That's why Paul loved the law of God. Because he saw it embodied, enfleshed in the Lord Jesus And then thirdly, the law is holy and righteous and good because it is a description of heaven. 
You know, you sell a house and you go to a state agent and he comes and he comes with his clipboard and he measures and he uh, and then he uh, he puts it on his website and he describes it and you go and see how he describes it. My, it's a wonderful house. He describes the features of it, the, the cornice work and the heating and the kitchen. You think, boy, it's a nice house, isn't it? Why am I selling this house that is so good? My friends, the Bible describes for us heaven. And it is a beautiful place. It's a wonderful place. Heaven is. The Ten Commandments are a conveyance from heaven that describe what lie before us in in glory. The people in heaven, they have no other God but one. And they never take his name in vain. They love one another with pure hearts, fervently. They enjoy an eternal Sabbath. And their relationships are honorable. No one does violence to another. No one lies to another in heaven. No one badmouths him. No one tries to steal the feathers from the angel's wings in, in heaven. No one covets what belongs to anyone else. It's perfect. And when the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, then that Lord's Prayer is a response to the law of God, isn't it? It's a longing that we should be as holy as God is holy. And the Lord Jesus gives us words to fly up to heaven, to ask from heaven grace to fulfill what his law asks us to fulfill. So we address no other God but our Father, and we say, oh, hallowed be your name. May your name be owned and loved in this world. And we say, give us this day our daily bread, because we don't want to steal from anyone. Um, And we don't want to covet And we ask him not to lead us into temptation and deliver us from evil because we don't want to sin. And twice in the Lord's Prayer he refers to heaven. He says, our Father, ah, but you are our Father who is in heaven. And he says, may your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. The law was given that grace may be sought. And grace was given that the law might be obeyed. So the law came down, and then he said, now, this is what you must pray, that you can keep the law of God day by day. May we do on earth what is done in heaven. Because there's no law-breaking in heaven, no police in heaven, No prisons in heaven, no lawyers in heaven, no fines, no second-rate citizens, no people whose guilt is paraded eternally in heaven. Everybody there is entirely like Jesus Christ. And it means that we embody the law of God too. So I'm saying that the third reason why Paul says he delights in the law of God is because then. Heaven beautifully fulfills. I mean, the place where we'll soon be. 
Just a few more years, my friends, and we're going to meet at Jesus' feet in heaven. And oh, we'll love one another and forgive one another and encourage one another there much better than we're doing at the present time. The third thing I want to say to you is that Paul acknowledges how his life often fails to measure up to the law. This is 21 and 22. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Ah, what a wonderful law it is. Holy and just and righteous and good. I don't keep it. I don't. I find myself so often a slave to another law. That's the dilemma. That's the conundrum. I thought I was a righteous man once, but when I saw what the law was asking. What a pathetic, blind fool I was. I wasn't subject to the law of God, neither indeed can't be. Well, Paul, why, why do you rejoice in the law of God if you can't keep it? Ah, oh, well, I discover about myself. I discover the truth. I discover reality. I discover that I need a saviour by the law of God. That's why I love it. Uh, I see that I'm a wretched man, not this proud man strolling along the promenade with my ten bars glittering in the sun. Paul, you ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven and washed from every stain and sin, and you say you're a wretched man? Yeah, I'm a wretched man when I want to do good. And oh, this week now, August 2015, I want to be good this week. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to be proud this week. I don't want to be sensual. I don't want to have a short temper this week. I want to be forgiving. I don't want to retaliate this week. I want to be patient and, and, and loving. Oh, how I need it. How I need it this week. But I find in me a body of death. And I'll find it tonight. And I'll find it this week. Things I don't want to do, I do. Would one of you dare to tell me that this is not your experience? Tell me that this conundrum is not in your own life, that you know nothing of this tension, this riddle of the Christian in your own heart. The very thing you want to avoid is what you do, and the very thing you do is what you want to avoid, and you're a prisoner of sin, and the law is holy and just and good. Every Christian experiences this. The spirituality of our thinking in the morning is replaced by carnality in the evening. And uh, no Holy Spirit baptism. 
I know tongue speaking. He's going to deliver you from that. In my being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, in these hands, in the touch, in my lips, in my eyes, in my groin, in my heart, in my mind. I am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And then the last thing then, uh, Paul thanks God for deliverance through Jesus Christ, who will rescue me from this body of death, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are times when I feel religious. There are times when I feel I am a preacher. There are times I feel I'm a Christian. I I really am a Christian. There are times I feel it. Although happy times, blessed times, times when I am aware that there's grace in my life, that I have a faint desire and a longing to be like Jesus Christ in all I do and all I say. I have those feelings, men and women, from time to time. Oh, blessed feelings. Peter was grieved. When Jesus said to him the third time, Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? And the only response that Peter had was to appeal to the highest court in the universe and to say to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. There's a great verse in the Psalms where the psalmist says, All that I desire is before you. I look at the law, and that is one thing. I know I'm released from its condemnation. I'm released from its penalty. I'm released from its dominion. Because my faithful Savior died, my faithless soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I believe that. That's the bedrock of justification by faith. But I know I am not released from the righteousness of the law. But I read in Romans 8 that the righteousness of the law is going to be revealed in me. In me! In every Christian whose faith is as thin as a spider's thread and is lodged in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of the law is going to be revealed. In us. I will live to God's glory. I will go to heaven. I will experience fullness of joy in God's presence forevermore. But there are days when that love is not paramount. That conviction, that assurance is not top in my life. And what I long for, I don't easily find. C.S. Lewis once said, You might not find the wish to be holy. But do you find the wish for the wish? You say, ah, that longing to be holy, I want that to be in my life. 
I want that. Thank God there's rescue. Thank God there is one who rescues us. What do you think? Every, every one of you now tonight. What do you think of Jesus Christ? He stands before us in the gospel. He says, I know what you're like. I know you're sinful. I know you don't do what you want to do. But he says, Satan has desired to have you, but I prayed for you. I have. Satan would sift you as wheat, but I prayed that your faith would not be destroyed by your falls into sin. Job said, I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear, and I abhor myself. Now I see you. I see you. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Woe is me, for, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, says Isaiah. But, oh, let's reason together. Your sins, so they are like scarlet, shall be as white as, as wool. Peter says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. There, lying in the boat, uh, overwhelmed with the glory of the man who was in the boat with him. But then he says, to whom else can we go? Where are you going to go to hear another gospel? To whom are you going to turn? You say you don't want Alfred Place, long sermons, and uh, you don't want Alfred Place, and uh, you don't want this Bible, Bible, Bible all the time. Well, where are you going to find good news of sins forgiven, hell subdued, peace with heaven? Where are you going to find it? If you turn away from my Savior, Jesus says, I've prayed for you. Paul says, ah, in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin, and that's true. But then, do you see how chapter 7 is followed by the opening words of chapter 8? Chapter 7. Ah, dark words. In the sinful nature, a slave to sin. And then the next word, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to those that are slaves to sin. Whose hopes are in Jesus only. You can have all the rest. You can have your fine houses and your fine cars. You can have it all. You find clothes, the money in the bank. Give me Jesus. I have no other righteousness. I know no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. And if tonight you are not yet a Christian, then you're not delighting in God's law. It's impossible. But Jesus died for a sinner like you. And you come to him. And you trust in him. And his law keeping will cover your law breaking. And his righteousness will cover your sin. And his holiness will cover your unholiness. And his heavenliness will cover your worldliness. Let him be all you want for the rest of your life and in death. And in eternity. And my Christian brother, sister, you who've had a bit of a struggle and have had a a few bad falls this past week, and you're finding new things.
new sins at your age. New sins mixing with the things that you do. Come with me to the old fountain that was opened up for sin and uncleanness to the one Savior. Come with me to him. And you can stand before the righteous Father and you can ask for and receive all all the wonderful things that God has got to give you. He saw a world of sinners lost and he stretched out his hands and they were crucified that he could embrace you who come to him and hold you to himself, his bride, his loved one, forever. Let us pray. Father, we do thank thee for thy word to us tonight again that's reminded us of the holiness of your law and the sinfulness of our nature. And thank you for the savour that you sent and the provision that you've made through him for deliverance from the law and its condemnation and the promise of life in all its abundance and beauty. In Christ our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.